Welcome to the Truth CSGO podcast, episode 50. This episode is all about gambling. It is indeed the gambling episode. Hey guys, this is Electro. Hey guys, I'm Guardian. This is Daps. This is Nico. This is Nifty. This is Chris J. This is Ferry. Code Zero. Flusher. This is Kerrigan. Are you listening to the Truth? The Truth. The Truth. The Truth. The Truth. The Truth CSGO podcast. The Truth CSGO podcast. The Truth CSGO podcast. Are we rushing in or are we going sneaky beaky like? So it's been a year since I said I would do this episode on gambling in CSGO and partly the delay is due to the fact that there's been a lot of changes to the way betting on and around CSGO operates. It's been tough keeping up with the changes and also my ambivalence about the subject has made it sort of difficult to approach. It's a large one and I wanted to do it justice. However, the changes that have occurred have not diminished the friendship between CSGO and betting, which is in some ways stronger than ever. And my ambivalence about it continues similarly. But we are now at a stage where we have sort of gambling sponsors like GG.bet or Betway with their logos on screen at all times of uh, broadcasts. We have whole tournaments named after gambling sites like the GG.bet Shuffle. Major content providers and voices in the scene are sponsored by gambling sites and many teams have their gambling sponsor prominent on their jerseys and every piece of media they put out. If you're a fan or a follower of NIP, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I can't turn on the TV, I can't open Twitter or Reddit without seeing an ad for a gambling site, despite never having placed a bet on any of them. And finally, I come from a country that loses more money gambling per capita every year than any other country. If you cannot tell from my delicious accent, that country is Australia. The average adult in Australia, according to CNN, loses about $1,000 a year gambling. And to put that into a little perspective, uh, the runners-up in that race, uh, in that particular race, are Singapore at $650 and Ireland at $500. So we are the clear front-runners in terms of people who are losing money at gambling. We have 0.2% of the world's population, and yet we have 20% of the world's poker machines. So I'm going to explore in this episode... Both the development of gambling around CSGO and how that reflects on the idea of responsibility, so whether it lies primarily with the public or with Valve or with the owners and creators of gambling sites, and I'm also going to look at gambling more generally and what it means to be addicted. Along the way, I will speak to a young man who made enough money through his gambling on CSGO to buy himself a plot of land. I'm going to speak to the programmer of a CSGO gambling website. I'll speak to a man in his 30s who was losing money on CSGO without telling his wife, but managed to break free of it finally. And a man whose 40-year gambling habit ended with a jail sentence for embezzling $850,000. So to tell the story of the romance between CSGO and gambling, we need to go back to 2013. CSGO had been released the year prior, and while it had been well-received, it hadn't exactly been a hit for Valve. After all, it was competing with the likes of Call of Duty Black Ops 2, Borderlands 2, Far Cry 3, and Halo 4. People who were already gambling on esports were able to use existing gambling websites to wager on the outcome of professional matches, just as they'd been doing with other esport matches like Dota 2. But the gambling scene was not that huge. But all of that changed when Valve released the Arms Deal Update that introduced cosmetic tradable items like skins for your guns. 
Now, apart from occasional drops as a reward for hours put into the game, the items were accessed primarily by opening mystery cases that cost a couple of bucks, the contents of which operated similarly to baseball cards. Some skins would drop frequently, while others had a very, very small chance of being contained in the crate. In the update, Valve said you could experience the thrill of the black market from the safety of your home, and they weren't wrong as these rare items became coveted by players and a black market opened up immediately on third-party websites where players could trade these skins and cash them out for real money. In the next two years, the player base of Counter-Strike Global Offensive uh, exploded by 1,500%. And the third-party websites, uh, they basically operated by buying dozens of Steam accounts, filling them with skins that they then used the same way a casino would, would use a vault of chips. Players could bet their skins on professional games or on casino-style games of chance and then withdraw the skins they won in real-world cash. And although this was against Valve's terms of service, by 2015 they were making over $2 billion a year on CSGO, mostly through the cut that they would get on every trade, which was 30%. So for an AK skin worth $5 that was traded 2,000 times in half a day, which was not unusual at the time, Valve would make $1,000. I spoke to a young man named Hashem, who was already placing regular bets on esports games at the time the skins update hit. I've been playing Dota 2 for around almost a decade at that point. When I found gambling and had uh, extra skins, I decided to toss some into into the game, into the bets. And it was just a few cents, a few dollars. It started off like that, started off small. And... I just kept going and going, and I turned uh, around $14 in my Steam wallet into a few hundred. So uh, I slowly transitioned into into CSGO as I started watching the games and found the game. As soon as I found CSGO, I, I really liked it. I really liked watching the games, and I turned my back on Dota and completely quit the game. I got addicted to case openings on CSGO, and I blew everything on, on cases, and I... I got a $70 knife to show for it. So I attempted trading on CSGO to make it back, but the knife ultimately in the end got scammed. Silly mistake from me. What, how did it get scammed? I was trading a bunch of stuff, and he counter-offered with it in the middle of the hundreds of items put in the trade. I was pretty bummed, but I was ultimately determined to try gambling again to make it back. I mean, I did have luck previously, so I thought maybe I could do it again. So I put around uh, $250 into my Steam wallet and uh, bought a few keys and items, mainly for gambling. At this point, I started taking CSGO gambling seriously. And considering my time zone, most games started around 2 to 4 a.m. I wasn't really doing much around that, around that year, so I just woke up. I set an alarm for around 2 to 4 a.m. Uh, to watch every game, every noteworthy game, every tier one game. I watched them, I analyzed them, and I compared them with the odds of future games. If I thought uh, the odds of a certain game was good, I'd put my money on that. So win or lose, I was fine with that because in the long run, if I was getting the odds right, I'd eventually come up. I'd win. Moneyball. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, around the year... Within a year, I think I have made, uh, I think I won, I turned that $200 into maybe 15000 How many hours do you think you'd spent on it at that point? Honestly, I wouldn't say much, except watching the game. Since I enjoyed watching the games, it, it didn't really cost me much time. 
I was going to. Wa- I wanted to watch most of them either way. So then uh, you, you you said you stopped when CS:GO Lounge closed down. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, after that, most of the sites started taking a bigger rake than CS:GO Lounge, so beating the odds weren't as easy at that point. Because it sounds like you were working on quite small margins over a lot of games. Yeah, I think uh, CS:GO Lounge took around. Two to three percent of the total bet, while other ones currently take at least five. And so you just walked away from it entirely? Uh, pretty much. I'd, I guess I got a job after, shortly after that. These days, I've stopped trading and I've stopped betting. Ultimately, it's not worth my time anymore, and I've been too busy. All right, with this job. Yeah, I mean, fifteen thousand dollars in a year was pretty good, but yeah, there's a lot of risk. That went into that, and with the uh, smaller margins these days, it's not really worth it anymore. What did you end up doing with the fifteen thousand dollars? I actually just purchased a land, and I, I guess that basically bought that piece of land for me, and I've saved enough to buy to build on it a house that I'm, may I may I'm planning on building one soon a house. So Hashem spoke about CS:GO Lounge. CS:GO Lounge was probably the most popular betting site at the time. And it did come out in 2016, thanks to Richard Lewis, that this was majority owned by ES Force, who were also one of the major financiers of arguably the most popular CSGO team at the time, Virtus Pro. So people could go on this site and bet their skins on the outcome of matches, uh, the teams involved in which were owned by the owners of the site. Pretty bizarre. Anyway, uh, Hashem mentioned it shut down. It did actually for a time, but it's now back up. And the shutting down was due to Valve's sending out a season desist letter to 23 of the biggest gambling sites at the time. The uh, letter was signed by a lawyer named Carl Quackenbush. It bears no real relevance to the issue, except uh, his name is Carl Quackenbush. Um, and it warned the sites that they were contravening the terms of service of Valve and gave them 10 days before the accounts containing thousands of dollars of worth of skins would be frozen and the items forever lost. Now, many of these 23 sites featured basic casino-style games that people who weren't interested in betting on pro matches could use to bet their skins. Some of the sites had roulette wheels, some had poker, some had slot machines, but all of them were unregulated. Most of them weren't upfront with their return-to-player uh, percentages. And despite gambling being illegal in 43 states in the US, most of their users were American. One of these sites was called CSGO Sweep and featured a remake of the game Minesweeper. If you're from my generation, you might remember it coming bundled with Windows 95 back in the day. And if you shared my distaste for the rigidities of the high school classroom, you might also recall sneaking out of maths to play a few dirty rounds on a Pentium 100 in the library. Like Minesweeper, CSGO Sweep featured a customizable grid which you could expand or shrink depending on the odds you wanted to bet at. Clicking on the blank boxes had a chance to hit a bomb which would mean losing the skins you wagered. The higher the odds, the more chance you had of losing everything, but the higher your return if you clicked on a non-bomb tile. (sighs) Crazy. Anyway, not many people would have known at the time that CSGO Sweep was initially programmed by a 15-year-old kid called Nathan. I was a known developer for other stuff in the past, and some people from Great Britain contacted me saying they wanted to start a gambling site, and they were looking for a developer, and I was their guy. Were you the only one programming the site? Uh, In the beginning, yeah. And then they enlisted more programmers as the site got bigger, 
and then we all kind of worked on it. But I wrote I wrote the first version solo. Uh, I was 15 when I made the site. <laughs> you were 15? Yeah. Wait, are you a prodigy? Uh, not really. And so, how, so you're now, what, 16, 17? 17. So who are these guys from Great Britain? Um, just some randoms I didn't really know. They kind of ended up fucking me in the end, but... Can you expand on that? Well, when Valve sent the cease and desist, uh, we told them we wanted to sell this. The developers said we wanted to sell the skins because Valve gave us a warning. They said, stop doing this. So we wanted to shut down the site, give people a chance to pull out their skins, give them a warning, and then after all that, sell the skins and cash out. But they decided they want, they wanted to keep it up and not do anything, and then that ended up with the bots being banned with a lot of money in them, where I should have got a cut of that. So there's a 10-day period between the season to desist letter and the bots getting banned, right? Uh, something about that, yeah. And these pommies who own the site didn't get rid of the skins in time? They weren't planning on getting rid of them. They were just calling Valve's bluff, essentially. Right, and then they lost it all. How much, how much did they lose yeah. in, in, in value there? Uh, I don't have an exact number I can give you, right. but I know it's above 10000 20000 Were you on a salary or you were being paid a potential commission on these skins? I got paid a decent amount, but everything they had promised me was based on the commission on the skins. And then, well, I was based on, I was going to get paid more as a site guru. And it never ended up growing all the way it was supposed to because it got shut down. So I never ended up getting paid as much as I should have. I started working on it in May, finished it about a week later. And then... It was up for the that entire summer, and then it shut down in September or August, I would say. Are you still in touch with these guys? Uh, no, I don't talk to them anymore. Uh, one of them's been contacting me, trying to make other sites, but I'm not really into it. Can you name these guys? Uh, I don't want to give their names, because they made me sign like some weird NDA thing on Skype. It's not really anything official, but... Really? Yeah. Do you think they're, do you think they're British gangsters? Uh, they think they are. <laughs> do they? Yeah. Do they act like it? The one of them, the one of them got a huge ego like halfway through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a huge ego. It was insane. He thought he like changed his name to like csgo.sweetbags or something. <laughs> and he was talking like he was the king of the earth. It was insane. Were they making a lot of money? Oh, they they made hundreds of thousands. Well, I made in the end probably 5,000. Yeah. So, w- why have you not then turned around and made your own side and become a young childhood millionaire? Capital. Uh, you got to have money to start those up. You got to have money to pay YouTubers, advertisers. You got to get the site out there. Money for servers. A site like that, servers cost like $300, $400 a month. Where, where was it registered, do you know? Some island, Malta or something like that. Yeah, there was not very much, very much tax. And how much do you reckon they were spending on advertising in the, in the beginning? A couple thousand. If you're to Google or YouTube CSGO Sweep, you'll find some of the early videos by people... You probably recognize. You mean YouTubers who were yeah, YouTubers. plugging it? Right. Now, what Nathan is talking about is a phenomenon that on-the-cusp millennials like myself observed with what can only be described as a lumpy mixture of two parts incredulity and one part naivety. People were getting popular and famous through YouTube by uploading videos of themselves gambling. And this is still going on. There's popular Twitch streams of people simply gambling. In other words, it appeared the human race, a species whose frontal lobe, once properly developed, has proven capable of producing the theory of relativity, a rocket that could take men to the moon, and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony also counted among its number members who were willing to sit at home for hours on end and watch other of their species wager digital currencies on digital slot machines. 
Now, the ridiculous lack of transparency and regulation eventually erupted in the manner that can only be described as analogous to one of those videos where a man's 30-year nexist is finally lanced in a village hut by a gagging nurse when, in July 2016, popular YouTubers T. Martin, Syndicate and Phantom Lord, who regularly won big money in their videos on the website CSGO Shuffle, were exposed as being the actual owners of CSGO Shuffle. Once their conflict of interest became public knowledge, thanks to other YouTubers like H3H3, Honor the Call, and journalist Richard Lewis, going back and watching the actual videos where these young men pretended to be shocked and amazed as they won skins worth thousands of dollars on their own site was kind of like looking through your front window at the blank face of a dog as it shits on your lawn. If in my lifetime my own rejection of religion proves foolish and some version of Yahweh or Allah comes down from above in a cloud of judgment, I shall thrust these videos in front of them in the pure knowledge that my own lifetime of misdeeds pale into mere bumblings next to the sheer soulless con artistry of T. Martin, Syndicate and fuckhead McPhantom Lord. Anyway, the uh, YouTubers released some lame apologies. It was kind of big news and a lot of people were upset. But just to give you an idea of how little it meant in the scheme of things, T. Martin has 3.5 million subscribers on YouTube and every single one of his shitty videos of him playing the latest shithouse AAA game gets over 50,000 viewers. Phantom Lord's Twitter is still followed by Get Right, Shroud, Sean Guerres, Rops and at least 14 other pro players. You know, I can't help but think of Jim Backer, the famous televangelist who was imprisoned for fraud, wrote a book called I Was Wrong, and then when he got out of prison, went straight back into televangelism with a show called The Jim Backer Show. Anyway, let's return to Nathan. We never faked bets. We would always give them currency to play, and then if they got something good, they would post it. If not, they would just give more credits and we'd let them deposit, you know, just kind of as a thanks for the video, whatever kind of thing, or let them withdraw. Did, did these people who, who were sponsored, did they disclose that you gave them credits until they won? Yeah, though they usually, in the, in the beginning of the video, we had them say, Cisco Sweep had given me credits to try out their game or something like that. Did, did they say they get, you gave them enough credits until they won, though? Uh, no. It seems like an important distinction to make, I think. Well, I mean, Sure. I mean, you're kind of attacking me personally, but I never did the advertising myself. So you don't got to, like, come off as that. No, no, I'm not attacking you personally. But there's a false equivalency here that, that, that doesn't add up. Well, I never did the advertising myself anyway. Uh, and I'm not blaming you for this, but we can still, we can still look at this site objectively together. Yeah, yeah, right? I agree, yeah. And the way these operate. And there's a, there's a, there's a very fine line, right, that, that, they, that they walk. There have been times where it was said, like, uh, boy, to YouTube who did a video for us, had said, in the beginning of the video, he's like, yeah, this is my second time recording this, the first time I'd bet it all and lost it, so it wasn't like we were trying to keep it a secret, but it wasn't explicitly said in the video, which I, I think it should be said. I agree with you. You said there was no underage checks, so there could have been people using CSGO Sweep who were like 12, right? Oh yeah, we, uh, there's no way to actually like completely enforce that. Uh, we, we did say the site's only for 18-year-olds, and that was in the TOS. And if someone sent us something and they were obviously under 12, we would block them from the site. But unless they'd given us a reason that they, to proven that they weren't 18, we assume they were. 
This is another good opportunity to interject with some more history because it was the issue of the gambling websites being so accessible to underage kids that provided much of the controversy in the rest of 2016. In June of that year, shortly after the mysterious Kafkaesque season-desist missive shot forth from the mouth of the great lumbering valve machine, signed, one can only imagine in some sort of spray graffiti, by the enigmatic, possibly anagrammatic Carl Quackenbush, there was an equally mysterious figure in the US called Michael McLeod, who brought a class-action lawsuit against Valve for basically operating an illegal casino. And if you're not sure what a class action lawsuit is, it basically means a, a law case brought by one claimant on behalf of many people affected. And in this case, McLeod alleged, and I quote, In sum, Valve owns the league, sells the casino chips, and receives a piece of the casino's income stream through foreign websites in order to maintain the charade that Valve is not promoting and profiting from online gambling, like a modern-day Captain Renault from Casablanca. He says that most people in the CSGO gambling economy are teenagers and under 21 makes Valve's and the other defendants' actions even more unconscionable. Now, sites like PC Gamer laughed at his lawsuit, arguing that the primary purpose for the skins was, as I quote, and I quote, sorry, a means of customization and creative expression, both for the makers of skins and those who use them. And the use of skins evolves later and goes beyond their intended purpose and was seemingly driven by third parties. And this despite the fact, dear listener, that at Valve's 2014 Developers Conference, employee Kyle Davis explained the thinking behind the strategy of the whole arms deal update. He said the best way to get players deeply engaged in games the company had determined was to give away virtual items of random value and encourage a robust market to trade them. Now... It is true that the bot steam accounts that gambling sites used to trade and hold large inventories of skins were operating against Valve's terms of service, as I said, but holding up a terms of service as a moral exit door is like pointing to your no minors served sign when an underage kid gets drunk at your bar. Anyway, the case was dismissed in the end because the gambling violations that Valve was benefiting from and other allegations of fraud and dishonesty basically weren't enough to qualify as a RICO claim. If you don't know what that is, you're not alone. I had no idea. And I think it's a US-only uh, <clears throat> term anyway. But RICO stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, which allows prosecution and civil penalties for racketeering activity performed as part of an ongoing criminal enterprise. Now, one of the problems with McLeod and his case was that he couldn't demonstrate properly that the amount of money that went through these gambling sites was $5 million dollars which is a bit of a tough pill to swallow considering Valve made $567 million net profit from CSGO that year. Anyway, the same year, two researchers from the University of Tasmania all right, made a compelling case that loot boxes, the cases that Valve are offering the skins in, did actually in fact classify as gambling because they can at some point be traded for real-world goods. And included in their findings was the embarrassing statistic that no less than 12 of the most popular AAA games that year offered loot boxes and were also rated by the US Entertainment Software Ratings Board as appropriate for 17 or younger. Now, key also to their classification of loot boxes as gambling was the idea that the random nature of the reward structure at the heart of a loot box, which is termed a variable ratio enforcement schedule, results in people quickly acquiring behaviours frequently in the hopes of receiving a reward. And earlier in this year, in a move that would come as no surprise to admirers of their progressive society, the Netherlands actually agreed with these researchers and outlawed all loot boxes. 
And for those that uh, complain or any listeners who would complain that this classifies Magic the Gathering or Pokemon card collecting as gambling, yes, it does. And if you would argue that the random nature of the card packs in those games are crucial to their success, then I have further confirmation as to why I always considered those games, and in fact any game which can only be played fully after spending an indeterminate amount of money, suitable only for the fatuous and or my seven-year-old nephew, and I have always preferred a game of chess, which is still going strong and always comes with a full set of fucking pieces. Anyway, let's get back on track with CSGO. Now, either community pressure caught up with Valve or Gabe Newell ran out of physical space on planet Earth to house all his briefcases of cash because in March this year, a seven-day trade ban brought by Valve meant that all skins would be held for seven days after each trade, which meant that skin gambling sites were badly, badly crippled. It also meant, according to Valve, a 70% decrease in people getting scammed out of their skins. Whoopty fucking do. To get around this, some websites made their own virtual skins and currency, like OP skins, to further distance the bettor from the item. One of the reasons casinos are so successful is that they use a fake currency, the chips, which is trading off the well-observed fact that the more steps of abstraction between us and our money, the less we value it and the more profligate we are. OP skins has taken that to another level. Now, the issue of responsibility is a very, very tricky one, despite my moralizing tone. And it's really the one I've grappled with the most while thinking about this episode, because it's quite confusing. But it's clear that for Valve to admit complicity or take any responsibility, they would open themselves up legally to all sorts of danger. And yet, by taking action against the sites in March, it showed that they had an immediate effect and their complicity previously was crystal clear. And it's also clear that they and other esports titles and sites have been acting with impunity in an immature market, taking advantage of inchoate legislation and governments that have lagged behind in regulation. Let's go back to Nathan briefly to talk about his feelings of culpability. How, how do you feel about the fact that there might have been 12-year-olds on there? They're old enough to know what money what money is, what it, how it works. They know they have a chance to lose it. They, they know they have a chance to lose it. It's not like they're expecting to win big. They know. They know they're not going to win big. Or they could, they, but they don't expect it, you know. Like, no one comes and says, hey, I'm going to make, I'm going to triple my profit. No one, no one thinks that. But if they're, if they're 12 and they're, they truly don't think, they truly think that they're going to make triple their money, I mean, it saddens me that they think that, first of all. And second of all, I think that their parents should step in and teach them a little bit about how the world works. Well, you mentioned the law, the law not considering it gambling, but the law also doesn't consider 12-year-olds as being able to make their own decisions. So if you, if you, if you buy into one, you have to buy into the other, right? Which is a 12-year-old needs to be protected from having to make their own decisions like things with money. If their parents let them on the internet, they're open to a ton of other decisions. They're open to, they can break the law any way they want on the internet. They could scam, they could scam people, they could do all that other stuff, but they can't, they can't do what they want with their money that they earn themselves they got to figure it out somehow i'm not saying like oh the, the way they got figured out all oh, the money in my pocket that's not what i'm saying i'm saying like yeah i retract what i just said a couple seconds ago that's not what i meant that there's any connotation on that it's not what i meant but no you don't see people complaining when they're winning is the thing you don't see people complaining that they lost when they win so that's the thing right there that i usually think about that that's 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 a little bit disingenuous nathan because you can say you don't see people complaining when they're high on heroin 
Right? It's only when they're, they're coming down and they can't get another fix. I've gambled myself. Like, before I said I'd gamble myself. And I know when to stop. It's not like, I'm like oh, I just want to need to keep going. I, and I've never met anyone like that. What do you think differentiates you from those people who can't stop? An actual issue. Uh, I think people like that are more prone to other addictions, like alcohol or drugs, but they don't have access to that kind of stuff at that time. If you are responsible enough to drive a car, I think you should be able to spend your money where you want it and know the consequences of where you're putting it. Well, one's emotional intelligence, though, and one's cerebral intelligence, right? You don't have That's to have true. emotional intelligence to navigate a car through the city, but you need some sort of emotional intelligence to know, to resist the yeah. feeling of uh, resist, gambling, right? Resist the euphoria you get from winning and know when to stop. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, some of what Nathan's saying reminds me of an interview I heard with Len Ainsworth. Len Ainsworth is the man responsible for building almost 80% of the poker machines in Australia. So that's 80% of 20% of the world's poker machines. I can't do the maths on that because I was too busy playing Minesweeper. But the interview is from a wonderful podcast named How Do You Sleep at Night? And I will whack the link in the show notes so you can have a listen. And when asked how he feels about the people who've lost money or whose lives have been ruined by their addictions to his machines, Len says... If you can't control yourself, whether it's gluttony or whatever, then it's time you took some lessons. He says he'll take responsibility for what individuals do when General Motors feels responsible for the accident some nut causes at the wheel. Now, even more so than Nathan, who I think was just an ordinary kid who took the opportunity to make some money in his summer, the disingenuity in Len's statements shines through like oily French fries in a paper bag. The comparison between driving over people and winning money is ludicrous because one is a biological urge and the other an aberrant result of psychopathy or an accident. People are far more susceptible to the lure of winning money than they are to killing people with their car. And the outcome of people driving their car is, on the whole, getting those people places they want to go. Whereas on the other hand, the overwhelming outcome of playing poker machines is people losing their money. So when I hear pro players like Device, much as I love the guy, telling a disgruntled fan who lost money on an Australis match that next time he should only gamble when he can afford to lose money, they're completely missing the point. The danger of gambling isn't the money you lose, it's the addictive nature of the behaviour. So Devi telling that fan... Uh, that, that advice is basically like a doctor telling a patient to smoke only if they're okay with coughing afterwards. It reminds me of the fallacy of early economic theory that assumed we are all rational beings acting in our own best interests. A very easy way to demonstrate the absurdity of this premise is to imagine a scenario where someone creates a brain interface device, let's just say Elon Musk for the sake of argument, and this interface device increases our motivation, discipline and rationality. In fact, without any discomfort, it makes us more likely to do things that are beneficial for our interests in the long run by stimulating the neurons that are fired when we think about the future and gently decreasing the propensity to ignore those that fire when we desire short-term pleasure. There is no rational reason anyone wouldn't want this, assuming it's completely uninvasive, unnoticeable, uh, it doesn't create any adverse mental health effects and we can override it anytime we want. No rational reason anyone wouldn't want this. And so it brings to mind the old refutation against people who look at addicts and say, well, they're choosing to go to the pokies. They're choosing to smoke a cigarette. They are making a choice in that moment to shoot heroin into their arm. And the old refutation and the obvious reply is, 
Do you know anyone who has chosen to become a heroin addict? Do you know anyone who has decided to become an alcoholic? Did any of you, dear listeners, wake up one morning and say to yourself, you know what, today's the day I become addicted to video games? So let's go now to a man named Bryce. I met Bryce through this podcast, actually. He was an early listener who reached out and we began playing together. Bryce is one of the friendliest, nicest dudes who has been an unexpected source of support for me over the past year. And my friendship with him has definitely been one of the best things to come out of CSGO for me. But as you'll hear, Bryce had his own run-in with CSGO gambling and he provides an insight as to why he got into it and how he got out of it. Much like yourself, I had a bit of a roster change in my life um, about this time last year. Um, And I guess part of trying to find myself and and whatnot and between jobs at that stage, I I decided it'd be a good idea to put about $20 at that time uh, into a into an account uh, with one of the Australian uh, sporting agencies. And um, I love sport. I love baseball, um, American football, pretty much anything sports-wise. So I thought, oh, I'll have a little punt. I know sport. I can beat the system. I used to bet a hell of a lot of money on table tennis. I don't play table tennis. Um, but <laughs> I got so involved in sport in general and what can I possibly bet on you know these 19 year olds playing tennis in Singapore that I have no idea who they are um, or these Ukrainian guys playing table tennis in some tier nine division in Europe like you can gamble on whatever you want to gamble on so $20 to cut a long story short basically became $200 became $2,000 and um yeah, I, I had a few wins along the way, and when you have a few wins, you feel very good, and you feel like you know what you're doing, and you can then gamble more money so you can win more money. Um, but unfortunately, that's that's not the case, and probably the worst mentality you can have. So I lost about um, well, I won my my biggest win was four and a half thousand dollars, and I felt on top of the world. Wonderful, this is great, I can do this. But then I proceeded to lose that four and a half thousand dollars, and and thought, no, I need to win this money back and then some because I won some so therefore I can do it again. Round about that time I got back into Counter-Strike after about 10 years off and foolishly started gambling on Counter-Strike games that really at that time I I didn't know too much about. Um, I knew that SK were very good and FaZe were all of a sudden this dream team and I, but I didn't really know the ins and outs of it or how many upsets there are on literally a daily basis so yeah put down a couple of thousand dollars um, over the space of probably a two-week period and, and proceeded to lose that um, and then another couple of thousand dollars and proceeded to lose that um, and then that was basically the end of my end of my gambling career if you like because I just had a wake-up call one day and thought you know, my partner's pregnant and what am I doing with my life? I'm just literally throwing money down the drain. Were people around you aware that you were doing this? My spouse doesn't listen to this podcast, so that's totally fine. I'm happy to be nice <laughs> and transparent. Um, I, Because with all of this as well, you'll always, there's a saying, you'll always hear about people's wins, you'll never hear about their losses. Mm-hmm. And that was what it was like with myself and my spouse as well. Like I would, you know, tell her, honey, I've won $1,000. Great. No worries. And, and I could see the kind of concern on her face of, well, you could have easily lost a thousand as well. But um, she didn't know about the losses, you know, as, as someone who's been through roster change and, and life was pretty hard in itself at that time, let alone with all this gambling stuff. Um, I, I'm assuming she probably just put it down to that. In terms of the initial 
roster change, <laughs> like that we're continuing yes. this analogy. <laughs> it's almost as if I feel like sometimes we, we're in the dumps and we drive ourselves further into the ground so that we really hit rock bottom in some ways. At least I do sometimes. Yes. And uh, was that, do you feel like you were, you were trying to do that? Because, as you said, it, it makes things far more complicated if you, you've had this big breakup and then you're like, well, you know, I'll develop some sort of gambling addiction on the side <laughs> just for an extra side serving of dysfunction. Is that what it felt totally. like? Oh, absolutely. Who am I? Yes. No, it's um, absolutely. I'll, I'll explain it two ways. And briefly, it's yes, 100% like that. Life is low. It can't really get any lower. Therefore, does it really matter if I lose a few thousand dollars? But the flip side of that, I guess, in my thinking was, okay, life can't really get any lower, doesn't matter. However, if I win, life's going to be great. And this is going to be the new, the change I need. And the, this is really going to kickstart me. Honestly, even talking about it now, because I haven't really shared this with anyone, like even talking about it now sounds so incredibly moronic, if you like, but the power of the mind and the, the way that we work as humans is, is, is crazy. Yeah, well, we all, we all have these moments, I think, especially after large life events. And I think, I think especially when we have a, a human connection that, is, that we lose, you have to search elsewhere for similar types of chemical interactions in your brain, you know? Absolutely. Fulfillment, yeah, chemical reactions, just like you said. Um, yeah, sense of accomplishment or I'm not useless, I can do something. I think I've sought that out through Counter-Strike myself rather than gambling, even though I think, you know, with the whole RNG thing, Counter-Strike actually is a sort of a gamble every time you play. Absolutely. When you're in these kind of dark moments in life, you always... Um, you know, search for something for me years ago, um, you know, when I was struggling at the time, that was, it was cigarettes for me. So mm. ended up, you know, you find that comfort in, in cigarettes or, mm. and then cigarettes became gambling and gambling could, I'm sure, become something else if you're not, you know, aware of your surroundings and, and your mindset or have supportive people around you, etc. So um, I, uh, I've got a, a beautiful spouse and, and a new baby boy, seven weeks old, and, and that's my life. Um, and they're, I guess that puts things in perspective when you have a child. You know, there's there's more to life than, honestly, there's more to life than Counter-Strike in playing a video game at midnight when your son's trying to go to sleep. So somewhere along the line, Bryce had learned to appreciate life enough so that when a beautiful woman who wanted to make a family with him came along, he was able to open both arms and embrace the opportunity fully. How did Bryce learn this? And what did he have that other people who get addicted don't have? Is it just an opportunity? Is it genetic? What's clear in the next story by a man in his 60s who I'll call Daniel is the way that he learned to relate to the world early on formed a pattern of behavior that had a grip on him right up until middle age when a life spent gambling resulted in disaster. Uh, when did you first start gambling? Probably when I was about 15, 14 or 15. In one form or another, um, I mean, initially I started playing pool for money, like, you know, snooker and things for money. And then you, there was a, a variety of pinball-type games that you could gamble on and win or lose money on. And were there other young people at these who were playing these games? No, generally they were a bit older than me, sort of in the 20 to 30 range. Was it the sort of um, scenario where you enjoyed pool and then became addicted to these games? or Bit of both. 
I think Paul was just, I was very competitive at anything. Um, and I think I had a need to prove that I was good at things. So by competing for money, you could prove to yourself or to others that you were, you know, you were reasonably good at something. You know, possibly being the youngest of six children, um, you always felt you were a bit the youngest and therefore, you know, you had to compete a little bit maybe. So when you were swagging school and whatnot to do this, did, did the people around you know? My parents, I don't think, did. And certainly, like, I, at that stage, um, the rest of the family were either overseas or um, the next brother up was at boarding school, so there wasn't other family members to know. So, so you were quite isolated, actually. You were one of six, but at this time, it was really just you and your parents in the house. Is that right? Pretty, pretty much so, yeah. From the time I was about 13, uh, it was pretty much myself and just my parents. Uh, Did you have strong friendships at school? No. No, not at all. Right. Um, I'd have a friend for a year, and then they'd move on, or I'd move on, or whatever. I changed schools uh, what, four times in six years. Was that because of your behaviour or because your parents were moving? No, just circumstances. Um, so where did it move on from the pool games? Uh, there was a, a pinball-type game that you could play for money. Um, and it wasn't pinball. You had to line up balls in certain sequences to win mon- to win credits. So where was this money coming from to bet? I was working, and sometimes I'd pinch it. Where were you working? A variety of different jobs. I worked uh, on market gardens as a farmhand. Um, I worked in supermarkets, and then I joined the Navy. What was the next stage in your gambling? Rest Point Casino opened down in Tassie. Or you had the pokies up in New South Wales. I mean, fortunately, we didn't have the poker machines in Victoria. So, um, you know, occasionally you'd go up to New South Wales or you'd fly down to Tasmania for the weekend and you know, dress up in your best suit and pretend you were somebody swank-like in the movies and go to the casino. Would you do that with your friends or just you? No, just myself. Myself and my, my partner at the time. Is this sort of post-Navy life? Yes, yeah, yeah, the Navy didn't last too long. I was out of the Navy by the time I was 20 and uh, got married and, yeah. So... Had time my hands and, you know, thought I was a smart aleck. Thought I was it in a bit. I was 20, I was married, I was living, you know, living away from home and doing what I wanted to do, supporting myself, so I thought. So playing, you know, playing cards and, you know, dice games at the footy club and, Playing footy, but you know, Thursday nights, you'd, after footy training, you'd still be at the footy club at one and two in the morning playing cards and stuff. So you were you were gambling every day? Most days, yeah. Um, by the time I was in my mid twenties, when money had run out, I um, had a first run in with the law for pinching money from a place I was working at. Where were you working at the time? Just uh, I was driving a delivery van, and I got a good behaviour bond for that. And, didn't stop me gambling, though. Why didn't it stop you gambling? Well, there was no real punishment involved. Yeah, you, know, you were made to feel guilty for a day. You went to court. Don't do it again. Be a good boy for twelve months. Mm-hmm. And that was it. What about the people who owned the business who you were working for? Did you have uh, anything ob- to do with ob- them? Obviously, I didn't have a job. <laughs> no, but I mean, you, you didn't feel guilty about taking their money. Not really. Um, 
in hindsight, yes, I do. But at the time, it's like an addiction to anything. I think at the time, all you want to think about is, okay, well, I got away with that, so where can I get some more money to gamble with? So was this the first point when your your wife realised that you'd been gambling? I think she'd probably known, but it was the first certainly um, open confrontation of, so to speak, or you know, not open, but yeah, the first public acknowledgement of it. Were you in any way acknowledging that you had a problem or you were trying to get help or was just like... Oh, you know, at that stage I acknowledged I had a problem and I went and joined a gambler's help group and and tried my best to, uh, you know, to abstain from gambling. But at that stage, it was that really wasn't effective. It worked for a little while, but it wasn't effective. How, how much money do you think you'd spend on a weekend in Tasmania? Um, probably a couple of thousand. And I'm talking 30 years ago, 40, well, closer to 35 years ago. It's a lot of money. But yeah, it was. It was a lot of money, yeah. Were you making a lot of money? I was making good money. Um I was working as an insurance broker at the time or insurance agent. I was making good money, but certainly not the sort of money that would allow me to go and lose you know, a couple of thousand dollars and not have to worry about it. So then where did it where did it lead to next? I just I continued to gamble more and more and more um, yeah, until in the end it became a focal point of my life. But you know, cards at the footy club or dice games or there were a number of illegal um, poker machine venues around before the casinos ever opened in Victoria or there were licensed poker machines. And, you know, if you got known, you could certainly go and play those and they were literally playing cards, you know, on a computer for money. And uh, they'd lend you credit, you know, so you ran out of money, oh, no worries, you know, have $100 on the house and you pay us back next week, whatever, and... Then it was have a couple of hundred, or have five hundred, or you know, and then it was right. Well, you got to pay us, or we'll come and break your legs. Did they ever come and try and break your legs? Uh, they certainly turned up at my front door at odd hours of the night and made threats. But no, I mean, on a couple of occasions, um, family members bailed me out, so it didn't get to that stage. Right. And I would endeavour to, you know, avoid the gambling again for a month or two months or whatever, and then in the end I think, oh, well, I'll just have a little, I'll just bet a little bit and a little bit and snowball pretty quickly. So you would try, would you, were you going back to groups and stuff or were you just trying to quit with willpower? No, I, I went back to the groups a few times, but then um, unfortunately one of the groups I went to, um, a number of them were still gambling and actively gambling and then turning around to the group and saying they weren't. And I knew for a fact it was a load of crap. They were. I'd seen them gambling. Um, so it sort of blew my confidence in the whole system a little bit. So you said this over, over a five to ten year period, or ten to fifteen year period, things got worse and worse. When did they come to an end? Uh, when I'd got a position working for a bank that enabled me to set up false loans and embezzled monies that got to the stage where I was caught and sentenced to three years in prison. So you were, you were, you were creating false loans for false accounts that were then going to you? I was making up false customers 
and then setting up loans for these customers, for customers that didn't exist, and funneling the money through a clearing account that I'd created in another fake name. It got to the stage where it was about once a week I was creating a false loan. For how much money at a time? Anywhere from ten to $30,000. How long did this go for? Almost two years. And how, how did they catch you in the end? Uh, I'd made a simple mistake on one account that I'd set up. It was just a simple error I made that made them question with the validity of the account. And when they looked into it and did some investigation, they realised there were multiple accounts channelling through the one account, so they just traced them backwards and worked out they were all being done by the same office. So they then investigated the office and worked out who was doing it. Where did they catch you? Where? Yeah, did they come to the office or...? They came to my home in the early hours of the morning and arrested me. Who was at home at the time? My wife. They traumatised her dreadfully. They searched the house for any evidence they could find, went through all our clothing, went through her clothing, went through all the cupboards. Very traumatising for her and I was led away in handcuffs. And did you spend the night in jail? What what was the process I'd like next? I come home for another three years. From the moment I was led away, it was three years and eight days later before I came home. Well, let's just back, backtrack a tiny bit. In those two years when you were doing that, did you feel an increasing sense of pressure? Were you worried that they were going to catch you or did it just become completely unconscious? My life just became a blur. Um... I think subconsciously I probably knew that sooner or later I'd get caught. But then in my mind I was also thinking if I quit, then they'd probably never be able to pin it back to me. So maybe I should quit. But then it was like, oh, well, I need the money to gamble or I need the money to live or whatever. So, you know, and I mean, it wasn't as if I was using the money to buy a flash car or flash clothes or, you know, highest, you know living high on the hog or whatever. It was all going on gambling. Was, was it and the rest of your money going on gambling? Like, were you not... Everything. Taking... Everything. Was your wife working at the time? Uh, yes. Had she had she questioned where your salary was going? I think certain to a certain extent, but I'd become quite adept at making up bullshit stories and telling lies and making excuses for why I was out half the night or all night in a lot of the cases and you know, coming up with all these reasons as to why I was working all the long hours I was and what I needed to do. and It was all a web of lies and deceit. I lived in a fantasy world. It was just a total fantasy world I lived in. And you lose yourself. You, you lose your respect for yourself, for others. And I look back on some of the things I told her and think, how the hell did I say that? And why did she believe me? But I think it was because not believing me would have been more painful. And I, you know, I can never make up for the hurt that I caused her. There's nothing I can ever do that will make up for that. And for what I put her through, for all that time, and for the three years I was in jail, and for the time after I got back, and you know, the friendships it cost and the, the social you know, derision that it caused her, you know, the comments that were made, you know, I was locked up behind you know, four walls, but she had to face friends and acquaintances and things. You know. I didn't have to face them. I was in jail. Did any of your friends say something in that in those two years that, that gave you pause? No. 
No, not really. But then I wasn't one for having close relationships with friends. I never have been. And I think part of that was because it would have interfered with my gambling and interfered with the lifestyle I was leading all that time. Now, I've always been a bit of a loner. So if you become close to someone at that point, it would have meant them really knowing what you're up to. Yeah, yeah, quite probably. How much money did you take from the bank all up? Unaccounted for about $850,000. So tell me about this jail time. What what was that like? Terrifying, uh, lonely, scary, um, confronting. Um, isolating, but it was the chance to then, you know, forced incarceration is the chance to face up to reality and to seek help because you have no other alternative. Well, no, I mean, there was gambling in prison, but I think it was at that point I reached, you know, the bottom where I realised the only way was to stop gambling and to seek help and get professional help with counsellors and psychiatrists and and also Gamblers Anonymous. Gamblers Anonymous came into the prison once a month. Quite a lot of people in jail are there for gambling problems. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah a lot of white-collar criminals are in jail because they've embezzled money for gambling, but horses or poker or casinos or whatever, including one that I'd actually worked with. You, you'd worked with him at, at the same bank? The same bank in the same... The same office, yeah. and neither of us knew the other what the other one was up to. Did he? Did he also see this as the the sort of rock bottom? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think in his case, it was a twelve month glitch, and he thought he'd work out a way of beating the system next time. I still have bad dreams about being in jail, so I don't want to go back there in any way. So after three years, your wife met you outside the prison. No. No, I asked her not to. I was released from jail in the early morning um, to catch a train. I was at a, a regional jail by that stage because I was considered a minimal risk. I had spent time in maximum security. I was a minimal risk and I just wanted some time on my own to get used to the idea that I was out because for three years everything I'd done had been monitored and videoed and questioned and so they dropped me to railway station and I caught a train home that took a couple of hours and I met her at home. What was your feeling on that train ride? Relief, trepidation, a bit of fear, fear of what, you know, what's changed in three years because it's amazing how quickly the world changes when the world you live in stays exactly the same. And it's funny, I mean, you see in the old movies about you know, the guy who always sits with his back to the wall facing the door. But that's what it's like in jail. You need to know what's coming at you at all times, just in case. So, you know, getting on a train and not having to worry about that, just little things like that that, that just change, you know, being free to get on a train when you want to. If you want to walk down the street and get a cup of coffee, you don't have to think, I've got to be back in 20 minutes for muster. Or, it's, you know, it's lock-up in an hour, I've got to be back in my room so they can lock us in for the night. I'm free to make my own decisions. What will I have for dinner tonight? I'll go and look in the cupboard and see what I'll cook rather than tonight's meal is, bingo, this is what you eat or you go hungry. Were you determined at this point to never gamble again? Yes. The alternative was was unthinkable. 
Right. Because there was only two other things that would have happened. Either I'd have gone back to jail for a longer time or I'd have killed myself. Or somebody would have killed me, one or the other. In making that decision, that's when you learn to live. To actually value life and learn to experience things. So you didn't value life before that? Not to the same extent to that I do now, no. No. No, I wasn't prepared to open up to anybody or to share my life fully with anybody. Because I had too many secrets. I had too many things to hide. From the time I'd been 12 or 13, there'd been things I'd been doing that some people knew about and others didn't and some things that nobody knew about and some things nobody still knows about that I'll never share. You know, I mean, we all have pockets of our life that are segregated. But when you become an addictive personality, be it gambling or whatever, those pockets get deeper and more isolated. For me, playing the poker machines was escapism. Because often I'd realise I'd be playing and I'd have no idea what, whether I was winning or losing or because my brain for half an hour, an hour it might have been, I'd been off somewhere else. I'd been thinking about other things and just clearing my brain and trying to slow the world down. What were you escaping? Life. If, if your life's not what you want, you can do something about it. Or you can escape into a fantasy. Is there a way you think you could have reached that resolution without it coming to jail? Yes, somewhere down the line, going back to when I was maybe 13 or 14 or 15, there was probably something could have been done. There's a fairly popular theory these days that, that all addictive behaviour is caused by a lack of human connection. Could you, could you simplify it that much, do you think? I think certainly that plays a part in it. Um, I think there's no question that I felt very isolated when I was younger. Um, I've never found it easy making friends or holding friends. Um, I've never found it easy to fit in. I've never found it easy at parties or anything like that. Um so that ability to connect with others, I think, is also part of the makeup that may also prevent you, or not prevent, but assist you in not being an addictive type of person because you can adapt to your circumstances. Um, I think it goes back to a feeling of never fully belonging somewhere, not really having roots and not belonging at school or, you know, not having any mates at school or anything like that, you never felt like you were part of anything particularly, except for family. So the only thing that really mattered was family. Everything else was superfluous. So that, so that, so that ability to connect socially, doesn't that come from your parents? Isn't that what your parents are supposed to teach you? Yeah, but remember too, I grew up in a different age. Um, and being the youngest of six... I mean, my mother was 40 when I was born. Um, and, you know, I was quite isolated from the father. Um, he was older again and drank quite heavily, and as was the case in those days, you know, the man would go off to work and he'd come home at the end of the day and sort of patch on the head and good night, kids, and you'd go up to bed. How, how old are you now? 60. Did you see yourself being somewhere in particular when you were younger at this age? 
Oh, you mean as in when I was younger, did I see a life for myself at 60? Yeah, did you have dreams? Did you have any goals? Oh, most certainly. And none of them are anything like the existence I'm living. I just wish that 40 years ago I'd known half of what I know now because maybe I'd have had a lot more enjoyment out of my life than I had. Interestingly, Daniel says he lived in a different time and chalks up some of his isolation to the age that he lived in. But as far as I can tell, it was also the age where kids played on the street and people didn't have smartphones to give their attention to and didn't communicate through groomed avatars online. So this point and this isolation is perhaps the most pertinent part of our discussion, in my opinion. You obviously take full responsibility for your actions. Do you think there is any responsibility on the part of casinos or, for instance, websites that run betting? Are they responsible? Probably not. Do they morally have an obligation? Most certainly. Um, I think casinos and online gambling and things are parasites for the vast majority of people. They don't provide any social service. They don't provide um, any contact or anything that's of any worth. But now that there is gambling 24-7 and it's thrust in your face every time you turn on your, you know, your tablet or every time you turn on your smartphone to play a video game or you turn on the television and there's ads for the casino on the television or you know, for this online betting or that online betting, it's constantly there so that you cannot ignore it. Um, you can tune out to it and I think that becomes a very dangerous problem. Because when you tune out to the constant ability to online gamble, you also tune out to the potential social problems that it creates. And people can become unbelievably isolated by being able to sit at a computer and gamble all day until they shoot themselves or cut their throats or whatever they do, take pills. So I find the distinction that Daniel makes between responsibility and a moral obligation a useful one. However, in some ways, I do agree when Len Ainsworth says people who fuck up their lives playing his poker machines just need lessons. Uh, Lessons that, as Nathan points out, their parents were supposed to give them. And lessons that, as Daniel illustrates, sometimes come only much later in life when you have nothing to do but sit with a psychiatrist and a therapist and another group of addicts. So Len isn't responsible for giving those lessons, but he does have a moral obligation, I think, which can be illustrated by a very simple analogy. If someone can't understand you because their first language is Portuguese, in other words, if they need English lessons, taking advantage of that and speaking only English when your own Portuguese is fine is a dick move, pure and simple. And if you're a Sam Harris buff and believe all morality comes from reality, it's not hard to draw a line between cooperation and the advancement of civilization. So even science tells us Len Ainsworth is immoral. Now, there's an argument that, well, if Len doesn't do it, someone else will. And if Len didn't build the machines, someone else would. If Valve didn't offer loot boxes with CS, players who were addicted to the nature of that game would simply spend their money elsewhere. But guys, this is not an argument for doing it. This is a justification for bad behavior. And this is why I think Valve has more responsibility than they're willing to publicly admit. 
because they are perfectly willing to wield the sword of morality when some kids in a team called I Buy Power throw a game for some of their skins. The very virtual items they've deemed to have monetary value, like a sovereign power that prints its own cash, yet that very same sword remains sheathed almost every other day of the week. Now, no one can blast anyone for purely making a profit. That's how capitalism works and gives us so many other good things. And we have to remind ourselves, of course, this is the great and wonderful company who made it possible to play and compete at this wonderful game, basically whenever we like, for a one-off payment of 20 bucks. Plus, $2 million of those case-opening profits goes to the majors every year as prize money, and I love the majors. So that's pretty cool. But as Nathan, the developer of CSGO Sweep, reminded me, this is also the same company who... Mere moments after they slapped the cease and desist letters on the gambling sites, brought out a whole new set of digital items, gloves and graffiti sprays, that their audience could spend money on and trade. What an unbelievable coincidence. The same week they're about to lose a shit ton of profit from their cuts on the black market, they release an entirely new revenue stream to shore up the loss of profits and maintain quarter-to-quarter figures. It paints a picture of a company whose priorities are a continued revenue stream above shutting down gambling sites. Now, you've got to take everything I've said in this podcast with a grain of salt. I'm not a journalist. I'm sure I'd have missed several nuances in several parts of the arguments here. And I do enjoy getting on my high horse about these sorts of things. So if you're interested in them, go and do a little more research yourself. Go and do a little more reading. I would like in the future to talk more about where we draw the line between gambling, video games, and other activities that bring a short-term dopamine, because it's a, it's a slippery slope, or it's a very hard uh, line to draw. But um, I think I'll do that in a further episode. And for now, let's hear from Bryce and Daniel some final advice for anyone out there who's maybe placed a few bets. Anyone out there who's maybe had a little wager, felt good, felt bad, maybe they're thinking of doing a little more. Maybe you're on a high. Maybe you're up. Maybe you're uh, feeling really good about your winnings and you're thinking, maybe I'll just put a, a little bit more on. Well, this is what these guys have to say. You know, if you can get out, get some exercise, go for a walk, read a book, as you've said in the past, like uh, the benefits are a hundredfold to your life, you know, and you'll feel much better about yourself. What would you say to a young Counter-Strike player now who's starting to find himself putting more money on these gambling sites or buying more, you know, crates. Maybe he's in his early 20s. He's, in, he's not about to have a child anytime soon. He doesn't have to deal with school. What advice would you give him? First and foremost, just be careful. Um, definitely, definitely don't spend money that you do not have. And I guess ask yourself, why am I doing this? You know, easier said than done, but why am I doing this? Is it filling a void in my life? Is it do I need this to be happy? Um, are my friends going to think I'm cooler if I, you know, have this cool skin or if I can tell them a cool gambling story or whatnot? But just be careful and you'll never, ever beat the system. Don't ever chase your losses. I suppose what you can say to people is, is that do you know anyone who readily gives away money? That just says, I'll give you $50. I don't know who you are, but I'll give you 50 bucks because you're a nice person. You can rest assured that any of these online gaming things or the the mystery case games or whatever, you know, pick A, B or C, the one who makes the money out of them is the casinos or the people who organise it. And there's no way you can consistently win 
with electronic gaming. It is not possible because it's, it's generated, even the poker machines that are controlled by the government, you know, they pay back 84% or 80% or whatever it might be. It means that 20% of everything you bet goes. Until in the end, you've got nothing left. And the only way to beat it is don't start. The way, the way you described how you were feeling when you were 15, though, I can imagine you saying that to yourself and it not having any effect. It's, yeah, it, for me, I literally had occasions where I walked out of places and punched myself in the head, physically punched myself in the head and said, you're an idiot. But a few days later, you think, oh, maybe this is the time I win 50 bucks or, you know. I might win a hundred dollars this time. I'll just I'll just play ten dollars. But I mean, I guess my point is that you'd already started, you know. So don't start applies to a lot of people, but there are some people I know who have started. Seek help. Seek help. Speak to speak to Gamblers Anonymous. Speak to Gamblers Help. Speak to Lifeline if you're that desperate. Speak to Lifeline. Speak to the Salvation Army. There are groups out there that will help, that don't judge, that aren't critical, that are there to try and help. I can make one recommendation too. Somebody gave me a copy of a poem once called The Man in the Glass, or also known as The Man in the Mirror, and Michael Jackson had a hit based on the same poem. And for anybody who you know, feels that they you know, are unhappy with their life or whatever, I suggest download a copy of it because at the end of the day, if when you look in the mirror, you can be satisfied with what's looking back at you and feel you've had an honest day, then your life's okay. But if it's not, the only one you're kidding is yourself because it gets very lonely locked in a cell at night. What gets even worse is if you're locked in that cell with somebody else that you don't know and you don't like. Yeah, think about that. You know, somebody who's in there for murder or rape or attempted murder or armed robbery where they've shoved a shotgun in someone's face. Yeah. So not everybody in jail is nice people like me. Try and enjoy the game of Counter-Strike for it actually is a cool video game where, you know, where we make friends and, you know, can hopefully not rage at the other team. And, uh, yeah, I mean, something stuck out with me from what you said in one of your um, – one of your previous episodes of I'd rather play with someone who's nice than someone who's good. And that is 100% how my mentality on Counter-Strike now. So just a final word um, for anyone who listened to these interviews, especially the interview with Nathan, the developer, and had the kind of reaction that a lot of people seem to, a lot of morons seem to, when they saw Wolf of Wall Street and thought, shit, this looks like a great way to make a buck. Nathan assured me that the current climate of gambling sites makes the barrier for entry far higher than it was a couple of years ago, and there are plenty of easier ways to make money online. Also, fuck you. 
A big thanks to Hashem, Nathan, Bryce, and Daniel for their generous time, and thanks to the loyal listeners who've been so patient since I promised this episode a year ago. Apologies, I didn't put in any news this ep, but just know that Draken got signed by Red Reserve, MSL joined Rogue, Kiyoshima stood in, or is standing in for Cloud9, and FaZe Clan won Epicenter. All right. I obviously have a lot to say about that, but it'll wait for a future episode. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed it, do me a favor. Share it on Reddit, Twitter, and wherever else you might think it might be of interest to people. Leave me a review on iTunes or send me an email, thetruth at thetruthcsgo.com, or tweet at me, thetruthcsgo. Don't forget, you can find the link to the How Do You Sleep at Night interview uh, with Len Ainsworth in the show notes. And this podcast is affiliated with CSGO2Asia. Music in the podcast was by Beaufort.Asia, and the news was by Josh. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. Until next time, enjoy the game. Enjoy the game.